this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Groovy Too. And this is a re-recording of episode 18, yes. which we realized four years after the fact was virtually unlistenable. Yeah, the sound was so bad, I apologize. And we knew what to say, after a four-year hiatus, I can't mm. even remember why, what our <laughs> reasoning was. It was you working on your book. That's part of it. Hmm. Then which, COVID started. Which still isn't written. But we stopped in the middle eight episodes into season five, and we're going to finish with the first new episode coming out November 6th. Yeah. This episode, because we're redoing episode 18, covers four shows. Yes, it does. The new way we're going to do it is we're going to do one show, an episode. One Brady episode per one episode of Groovy Tube. Yes. So this show is going to be covering, this is the beginning of season five. So the first episode is Adios, Johnny Bravo. Episode two is Mail Order Hero. Mm -hmm. Episode three is Snow White and the Seven Bradys. And episode four, You're Never Too Young. Mm -hmm. And before we start with Adios, Johnny Bravo, which is a <laughs> classic, of course, as we have done with other episodes, we've talked about what various people involved with the show had to say, including Lloyd Schwartz, one of the creators with his father, Sherwood Schwartz. Yes. And as we talked about before, Lloyd is very full of himself and never does anything wrong and blows his own And horse. what's his book? Is his book Brady, Brady, Brady? Brady, 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 the complete yeah. story of the Brady Bunch. And so at the beginning of season five, Things were beginning to unravel. And I'm just going to read a little bit Ooh. from his book about what was going on. Okay. Just as the Brady kids began their singing careers without our knowledge or consent, and we hmm. talked about that in a previous yes. episode, they began to explore a change in their management and or agents. Over the summer of 1973, just before we began filming season five, they all decided that a guy named Harvey Schatz would represent them. Hmm. Neither dad, meaning Sherwood, nor I had ever heard of Harvey Schatz. He had never been involved in the show in any way, but somehow he was able to get all the kids and their parents to go with him for representation. And I want to break in here to say too, uh, he doesn't mention this, Christopher Knight's father and some of the other parents were actually involved in show business. Susan Olson had older siblings who had all been in show business and her oldest sibling was 24 years older than her. So the wow. parents, some of the parents had a lot of connections. So it's and not also, a, why shouldn't the kids have agents? Right. But anyway, Harvey Schatz requested a face-to-face -face meeting with us, the kids, their parents, and himself. I was invited into a meeting with a lot of people with whom I had grown extremely close. And this man, whom I had never met, Ooh. suddenly Harvey Schatz got up and started making demands. The same kind of demands that he had made to dad earlier. He had talked to Sherwood Sh Schwartz on the phone earlier. <laughs> I skipped that part. He was saying things that I knew were untrue. He said that I never took into account what the kids wanted, but I always had. I had always been there for them in every way. In disbelief, I looked at the kids who averted my eyes. I think he means they averted their eyes. <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was hearing. He capped it with, from now on, anything you say to the kids, you'll say through me. What? Who was this guy? I had never seen him before, and he was advocating changing how we have been doing the show. I am not shy, not when I think I am unjustly accused. Why? I asked. He said, why what? <laughs> <laughs> why do I have to go through you to talk to the kids? I never have before, and everybody has gotten along well. I turned to the kids. Haven't we? 
<laughs> they looked away. They were clearly becoming uncomfortable with being placed in the middle. Harvey Duh. said, Harvey said, but you don't listen to them. This was too much. He had obviously sold them a bill of goods and he was now using them to implement his ambitions. I looked at the kids and said, I'd like one example when I didn't listen to any of you. None of them said anything as they looked back at our years together to try and remember any example. Finally, Harvey prodded Chris, who rather reluctantly said, there was this time when I wanted to say something one way and Lloyd thought I should say it the way it was in the script. I said to Chris, did I listen? Yes, that's my job. I have to decide if something is right or wrong. Most of the time, I try to incorporate what you all want. I even ask for it, don't I? All of them said yes. The meeting disintegrated immediately. Before they even left the building, three of them fired Harvey shots. However, dissension had entered the show, and much of the entire fifth and final year of the show was filmed with an us-against-them mentality. I can't even remember who stayed with Harvey Schatz and who left, but it was unpleasant for all concern. None of Harvey Schatz's demands were ever addressed. You know the expression, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And it wasn't broken until he came along. For the last year of the show, I was now in a Cold War relationship with these kids who had become such an integral part of my life. It shows what can happen when dreams of money fill people's heads. As far as Chris Knight was concerned, not only did it change the nature of his relationship with me, but it changed his relationship with his own mother, who was one of the leaders of the pro-Harvey Schatz faction. He later told me that he felt manipulated and his relationship with his mother was made more difficult for him. Though they were all under contract and did the work, the good feeling of the previous four years was changed unalterably. That's his side of it. But I will say that, number one, I don't see any reason why an actor shouldn't have an agent. Also, it's the agent's job to advocate for their clients. And everyone is trying to make money. That's the whole point of being in the show. Like all his stories, it's probably factual. I mean, the conversation sounds like it was probably pretty accurate maybe because yeah but he well what i want to say about his dialogue is he is always the hero of every conversation the way he's always the ones with the great points and the undeniable and he always wins and he always wins the conversation reminding me of many self-published books by men (laughs) that i had to read in the writer's digest self-published contest but that's a conversation for another day he's always right and i think he didn't like not having the control yes that he'd exerted over these kids and who knows what really happened but they were probably all getting tired of it anyway. They were getting older. When you watch this season, I felt, wow, these kids look a lot older than they did at the end of season four. Yeah. Yes. And we'll see later in the season how they try to remedy that. Yes, we will. And Spoiler! I most people know. What we're, and there's a lot to say about that, too, in these books. But should we get started with Adios? Yes. Johnny yes, Bravo. we will. I'm sorry. Before you start, I want to say, too, this episode was written by a woman, Joanna oh, yeah. Lee. And I believe that this is the first episode, this is the first episode of the fifth season, but this is the first episode of the entire series that was written by a woman. And I'll go back and check. And next time on our new episode, yeah, I'll I correct myself if I'm thought wrong. There might have been one, there might have been one, one the one with the two doctors. Right, right. That's true. Yes, there may have been. But, but very rare. Very rare. It is rare. 
Um, so the first scene is an outside a nondescript looking office building and you hear music playing in the background. They show uh, the scene opens up with Greg. <laughs> he's in a room with gold curtains and he's singing this crappy song about how you have to be in love to love a love song. Mm. And the other kids are singing backup. There were no instruments in evidence anywhere. Yes. I don't know who's playing the music. I know. I'm like, first of all, I'm like, they're the worst lip syncers ever. And I know <laughs> yeah. back then on, on music shows, people did lip, lip yes. sync. I remember Randy Bachman once forgetting to do the stuttering part <laughs> on American Bandstand. You ain't seen nothing yet, but where's the band? Even a fake one. Like if they're going to be a singing group, are they just going to sing and there's going to be recorded music in the background? So Greg, at one point in the song, sings to Cindy, you're the love in my song or something like that. And they are looking into each other's eyes and it's pretty creepy. I thought it was incredibly creepy, almost like the director had forgotten that this is supposed to be a brother and sister, Yeah, it was you gross. know, because it was gross. I also thought the song went on way, <laughs> way, way, yeah. way, way it too did. long, it way did. too long. Two men, uh, one in a suit jacket and a tie and a woman are offstage by the camera watching. So there's like a cameraman, some guy in a suit and a woman taking, she's probably an assistant. And they're grooving. They seem like they're grooving. Yes, they on seem it. to. It looks like it's a TV studio, obviously. And a young groovy woman is watching from the audience, nodding along, although not in time with the song. She's like nodding. Like this woman is played by the actress Claudia Jennings, mm -hmm. who was a 1970 Playmate of the Year. No, who Barry Williams obviously notes that in his book. Yeah, she. Apparently, and I'm not sure if it was before this, but in her career after this, made a lot of B movies. Barry Williams says loads of cheesy car chase B movies. Erica Woke in the Bradypedia says she was the queen of the B movie. Oh. Sadly, though, Claudia Jennings died in a car accident oh. six years after this episode was made. Barry doesn't mention that in his book, so I don't know if he knew that. I feel like he would have mentioned it if he had That's known. That's sad. I mean, because you don't say she made loads of cheesy movies and then don't say but. And oh. then don't mention she didn't buy so, But anyway, she is a very attractive young woman. Yes, she's very She was pretty. 23, 23 in this episode. And now Greg is singing to Marsha, which, you know, I'm sure they're, they're Less real life. creepy, Barry but they're still supposed Maureen to be liked it. An older woman in the audience sitting behind Tammy seems to be singing along the guy off stage in the suit jacket looks like he's checking greg out the way he's looking at him we don't know yet but it's hal it's hal barton but he he looks like he's really enjoying greg's um hmm. performance finally the song is over and the suit jacket guy comes over and shakes all their hands and tells them they got a spot on the show and to Ooh. be there at noon all the kids are leaving and chattering it looks like it's like a green room or like a hallway i don't know and the groovy girl from the audience comes in and buttonholes greg she introduces herself as tammy cutler and tells greg his profile with the grade on an album cover mm. she asks greg if he has an agent and he says no so she hands him her card and tells him to call her at 10 in the morning and i'm assuming that means 10 the next day but she doesn't say the others are about two feet away looking on they are right there they come up and ask greg who she is and what she wanted and I'm like, as if they couldn't have heard the conversation, since they are literally yeah. two feet away, Greg and Tammy are talking in normal it's tones like of voice, this little room. and they're all there, obviously, listening. I know. Greg tells them that she's an agent, and they're all excited. 
they're all excited that they're going to get a big deal. They're going to get a big contract, blah, blah, blah. It, to me, it was obvious from the conversation that she was only talking about Craig. Or she was interested in him. Yeah. Right. I mean, how would your profile look on the album? She didn't say, wow, you guys picture really right. great on it. And cover. everything she said was to him about yeah, him. I know. And she didn't mention the other kids at all. So <laughs> whatever. The next scene is the Brady house. Alice is dusting and Carol is arranging flowers. Yeah. Because poor Carol has nothing. And also, by the way, I just read something recently where Florence Henderson, and we might have discussed this in another episode, she wanted Carol to get a job. They didn't want they, the, that the producers. Doesn't, yeah. That doesn't surprise me. Poor Carol. She, she has such an empty fucking life. She has such an empty life. I know. All she does is arrange flowers and do needlepoint. Yes. And then it looks like she reads a little before bed sometimes. Sometimes she reads magazines. And she has yeah, sex she with might Mike. have a book. She waits on Mike and has She sex hangs on, she feels Mike up all the time. That's right. Kids run in yelling. They tell Carol they have fantastic news. And it's one of those typical scenes on the show that I hate where they're all yelling and talking at the same time. Yes. And it's obviously fake. It's like they're all just going, bah, 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 bah. yeah. Carol says, I bet you're going to be on the Hale Barton show. And Greg says, it's even better than that. And he mentions that this groovy chick came up to talk to him. The adults are like, hmm. And Marsha goes, and she's an agent. And Alice, for a second there, has a very skeptical look on her face. Woman agent. And they say that she wants Greg to call at 10 the next morning. And Carol and Alice both seem a little, well, okay. They aren't as excited about it as the kids are. Oh. Mike comes in and immediately looks in the pot on the stove. And he says, hi, how's dinner coming? And I'm like, fuck him. Although I probably would look, I probably would do the same thing. Yeah. I'd probably look and see what was cooking. So Carol says it will be ready in a minute. And they kiss. Mike is wearing a very groovy pink and white striped shirt with an extremely wide tie that has... Uh, black and pink I think it was black black and pink stripes and a gray suit on my tv it looked like like pink and purple but a different shade of pink than the shirt they did not match and the tie was so wide it was like a clown tie I know it looked pretty cool yeah it was groovy 70s he asked Carol where the mail is and picks up a piece of mail that's for Greg Mike says it's from State University with a suspicious note in his voice Carol says, what's wrong with Greg going to my alma mater? Mike says, nothing at all. Carol says, well, you always want him to go to Norton College. Mike says, as long as he gets a good education. And Carol says, exactly why he should go to state. Mike reminds her that state has lost 35 straight football games. And Carol makes a face. And, you know, well, a lot of know really what? prestigious schools have shitty, Columbia University has was, a shitty football That's because the Ivy League doesn't have football scholarships and neither does the college I went to. And as we always used to say at my college, well, how would they do in a reading contest, huh? Ooh. Let's have a reading contest and see who wins. And now we're at the next morning. Close up of the clock's hands inching toward 10 a.m. All the kids are sitting on that wall planter thing under the stairs. You know, at the where the yes. vase that broke was. Very staged looking. The clock chimes and the kids clamor over to Greg, who's sitting on the coffee table writing something. It looks like he's writing music. He says he doesn't want to look anxious and call right on the dot. But they keep bugging him, so he gives in and calls. 
Tammy answers and he Greg has to remind her who he is. Um, you know, he's it's me, which Greg, I think Greg is me. bullshit on her part. She gave him her it's car. It's a power play. Yeah. He tells the other kids that she wants to meet right away, but just him, Greg. The kids are like, what the fuck? And he's like, she must have figured that I was the leader because I'm the oldest. I can make a deal for all of us. Marsha, Jan, and Peter say okay. But Bobby and Cindy look dubious, but they agree. Before they say okay, they both kind of give each other a look. Yeah, and I thought that was funny that those two seem to be the most reluctant and skeptical you know, about That's because they know they suck the most. What, those two kids? Well, it's just like in the Partridge family, the two younger ones. Yeah, with her tambourine. Oh, the little yeah, girl played the tambourine. Right, and the little girl barely spoke too. I know, that poor thing. Now we're in Mike's den office. Mike is wearing a striped paisley shirt. It's like a shirt with stripes. And some of the stripes have like a paisley pattern in them. And I believe that our brother Jimmy had one just like I believe you are correct. Carol is waiting on Mike. Of course she is. And that's That's probably why he doesn't want her to work. Because then he would have to get off his fat ass and go get his own cup of coffee instead of having Uh, her wait on him. Personally, I think it would be kind of nice to have somebody that would come bring me stuff all the time. Yeah, but I wouldn't want him around. Well, she's feeling him up all the time. That's true. He is working at his drafting table. Greg comes in and asks to borrow the car. Mike says he guesses so, but then he asks why. And Greg says he's going to meet this agent. And Mike says, fine, the keys are in the kitchen. But as Greg is walking away, Mike cannot help it. He has to give him a little bit of a mini lecture. Actually, he gives good advice. He says he knows Greg is excited and flattered. But he needs to keep his cool. And Greg says he has it under control. As Greg is leaving, Mick Carroll comes in bringing a cup of coffee for Mike. Mm-hmm. Mike says he doesn't want the kids to get their <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. He doesn't want the kids to get their hopes too high. Carol says it's just an adventure for them. And Greg is too level-headed to get carried away. And I'm like, really? Yeah, I know. Since what when, is Greg, when has Greg ever shown himself to not get carried away? I, I remember that all the <laughs> She things... has a very, very short memory. And Mike looks dubious, at least. So the next scene is in this really groovy place with a beaded curtain. Which makes me think of Julie's apartment on the Mod Squad. Yeah. Which yes, is a, it reminded me. Which is a child I always thought was groovy so groovy because she had the beaded curtain. julie had more floral prints yeah i mean Tammy she was has more, more geometric right prints. she was julie was more groovy overall but it was yes. her pad she's not an office yeah yes it's tammy's very groovy office it's got big 70s pattern geometric like zigzaggy patterns on the wall greg is impressed buddy berkman tammy's partner comes in he's wearing a jean jacket <laughs> and jeans and has a butterfly on his he's got this t-shirt with like a butterfly on it and i thought he was kind of cute i did too he was very masculine even though he wore his tippyish clothes he's got shades and he's got that 70s curly hair that all the guys have yeah he shakes greg's hand in a complicated way and looks him up and down saying beautiful and dynamite he's like (laughs) check he's like looking at like and greg is totally oblivious (laughs) Greg says he brought a tape of, quote, our group. Tammy says it's not necessary. Greg says he thought they'd like to hear how it sounds. And Buddy says, sure, and takes the tape, and then he tosses it. <laughs> he just tosses it on the desk. I thought Tammy and Buddy were pretty funny, actually. Me too. Buddy hands Greg a guitar, and Greg starts playing. Buddy keeps saying, that's great. It's righteous. 
I feel too like Craig should be suspicious because Buddy is really way, way, way too enthusiastic. Know, He's kind of love bombing Eddie. Greg a little. I know he is love bombing. That's perfect. Buddy says to Tammy, "What a find! I hope he fits the jacket." Yeah, she says he will. She says, "I never miss." But he keeps saying how great Greg's playing is while Tammy goes in a closet and comes out with this matador type. <laughs> I think in one of our books, it says it actually was some matador costume yeah. they got. It fits in perfectly. Tammy says, Greg says, are all six of us getting an outfit like this? And she says, just you, babe. Mm-hmm. Greg says, but my brothers and sisters. And Tammy says, as of now, you're solo. Buddy says, you won't be in the top 20. You'll be the top 20. <laughs> Greg says, he's part of a group. Tammy says, no, you're not you anymore. They tell Greg he's the new Johnny Bravo and bring him to a mirror. Greg is confused. Like they stand behind him in the mirror. <laughs> I you know, know, it's I know. Typical pose. Greg is confused at first, but seems to get on board pretty fast. He as does. preens in the mirror. Yes. You know how the Brady's love to look at the mirror? They love the mirror. I was going to say the mirror they, They're is fascinated another... by their own oh, image. Yes. The next scene is the Brady, <laughs> the Brady driveway. Greg drives in with the top down. It's a maroon convertible. And can I just say, Erica Woke in the Bradypedia points out this is the, it's not the 11th, but it's one of 11 cars. This is the Ooh. first appearance of it. One of 11 cars they used on the show. It's a 1974 Chevy Impala maroon with a white interior. It's one of two maroon convertibles. There are many blue convertibles, if you remember, and a couple different station wagons. Yeah, Carol always got the stupid station wagon. The kids run over to the car. They want to know what happened. Cindy says, when do we get famous? Hmm. Greg says, well, we don't, Cindy. Peter asks if Greg blew the deal. Greg says, no, not exactly. And then he tells them they want just him. Solo, as in star. (laughs) Marcia says, solo, as in sellout. And Peter says, that's dirty. Bobby says, you're breaking up the act. And Jan says, Greg, how could you? (laughs) They all walk away. Cindy is the last one. Greg appeals to Cindy. He says, they just wanted to sign me, the new Johnny Bravo. They said I'm going to be a big star. Cindy says, but a very small person. And she leaves. And I just want to point out that this may be the first time ever we A, get to see Susan Olson's acting chops. I think she delivers that line very well, despite your recitation of it. (laughs) <laughs> and and I also want to say, I think that's one of like the first serious conversations that she and Greg have ever had. Yeah, There's not so. hasn't been much interplay between them over the series. You know, she actually, in that moment, acts her age. Obviously, yes. that falls apart in future episodes. And I episodes. think she's about 12. Right. Yep, yeah, she is. Yes. Greg folds his arms and looks defiant. The next one is the Brady house. There's jaunty music for some reason in the long view of the Brady. And it's that side view that shows the garage underneath, which doesn't there is fit. None. Doesn't fit at all. Greg is talking to Mike and Carol and Mike Sten. Mike wants to know what happens when Greg records the Johnny Bravo album. Greg says he'll have to tour to plug the album all over the country. 
Mike says, how are you going to go to school at the same time? And Greg says, he'll have to give it some serious thought. And Mike says, you better. <laughs> there are ways to do both. Yes. It's not an either or proposition necessarily. I'm just saying. Well, on the Brady, in the Brady world, everything is. Greg leaves and Carol says, did he call me man? He must have said man at yeah, some point. Yeah. And Mike laughs and says he thinks so. And I wondered if that was an ad lib from Carol. And yeah, it uh, seemed a little uh, I mean, from, and from, from um, Florence, Florence. Anderson. And I wonder if when Greg added the man, like something he said was kind of an ad lib too. So now we're in the girls' room. The girls are sitting on the beds. Alice brings in laundry and she wants to know what's wrong. Marcia says, of all the phony plastic names, Johnny Bravo. Jan says they should have called him Benedict Arnold, which we, of One course, of we many, saw that coming. Many Benedict their Arnold, her <laughs> their obsession, favorite I know. erroneous obsession. I saw that coming with Benedict Arnold. Marcia yeah. says they'll sound better without him, and Cindy says they can call themselves the Brady Five. Yeah, uh, that's already taken the Jackson yeah. Five. Alice says, how about the sour grapes? Mm-hmm. She says, put yourself in Greg's shoes. Good for Alice. The voice of reason. I like it when they have Alice actually be an adult who helps guide the instead kids. Some instead obsequious of, ass I mean, kisser. She'll have clownish stuff to do soon enough. She yo-yos between being a <laughs> voice of calm and reason to being an obsequious ass kisser to being just this clownish physical. That shit happens to and people right. laugh at her all And the they time. humiliate her to get their own jollies. So she tells them, put yourself in Greg's shoes. And Marsha, after thinking about it, admits she would have done the same thing if they had just wanted her. And Jan argues with Marsha, but Marsha says, no, no, you would have done the same thing. I liked the interaction between the two, Marsha and Jan, when they were, they had that short little argument where Marsha's like, no, you know you would. And Jan's like, okay, yeah. And it seemed very natural. Right. Marsha says they need to go tell Peter and Bobby that they should stop acting like spoiled brats. Greg is up in his room playing his guitar and the girls come up. Greg, too, has the Julie beads in his Yeah, pad. why would hit those beads? Yeah. Marsha says they think he's going to make it big. Jan and Cindy say they're going to start a fan club. The boys are okay with it, too. They call him Johnny. Bobby's going to sell merch, and Peter was going to sell autographs. And They're ahead of their time. As usual, but as usual, whenever they all get on board with something, they go way overboard, yes, and it becomes do. this, like, obsession thing. Yes, Although, yes, it seems yes. like all that stuff gets dropped pretty fast, so. The next scene's in the kitchen. Carol, she's pouring stuff into mugs. I thought it was coffee, but it's hot chocolate. It turns out, yes, and Mike can't even fucking pour his own hot mm, chocolate. He, he has to be served by He's Carol. the husband. She's right. the wife. Mike is saying there, there was never a question about Greg going to college. Carol agrees with him. They both agree that he they always thought him, you know, he's going to yeah. college. Alice comes out of her bedroom because they're so fucking loud. They woke her I up. Know. They offer her hot chocolate. Mike says, Greg probably won't make it. But if they force him to go to college, he'll rebel. They go back and forth. And Mike says, well, Greg hasn't made up his mind anyway. And Alice, of course, agrees with whatever. Well, as Mike and Carol go back and forth, Alice has to agree with each thing. Because as we've seen in previous episodes, if she doesn't agree with them, she will get fired. Yeah. So well, she you know, has to, she can't have job. her own opinions. She's part of the family, but she can get fired. Right. Now it's the next morning. 
Carolyn, <laughs> Carol and Mike are planting flowers in a brick planter in their backyard. My impression is that they are planting plastic <laughs> flowers to match yeah. the astroturf in the backyard. Yeah. They'll last yeah. forever. Greg is visible through the sliding doors. Uh, he's on the phone in the family through the, room. Through the glassless sliding The glassless doors. doors. Yeah. Carol asks Mike if Greg has mentioned college, and Mike says not yet. Greg gets off the phone and comes outside. Greg tells them he's decided not to attend college. And can I just say, he's wearing a very groovy royal blue or light blue shirt with different colored flowers yes. all over. I liked it quite a lot. I, I liked, liked a shirt like that. Yes. He's going to see his agent this afternoon. Mike and Carol are pissed. Carol says fame is fleeting, but college education will last a lifetime. Greg's like, yeah, I can always go later. Actually, in the 70s, a lot of guys that were, you know, GI Bill, Vietnam vets went later. Right. And the draft was over by then. So he wasn't going to be getting, he didn't have to go to avoid the draft, which they would never have mentioned on the show since you would never know through the entire series that the war was being fought. And I just want to say too, that in this scene, Mike and Carol could not be less supportive of Greg and his dreams. I know, they were so mad. They they just stomp all over his dreams. And they they obviously don't have much faith that he's going to be a success at anything. I know this isn't real life, but like say my kid was really musically talented, which... I mean, Greg, I don't know. Barry Williams could sing. He 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 did go yeah. out on and do musical theater and stuff at her. But if they had that chance, I mean, a real agent and a real, ch- I mean, she's a real agent, you know, right. it's something to consider. I know. But anyways, after he leaves, Carol tells Mike she knows what he's thinking and she agrees with it. And Mike says he's going to check out that agent. Mm. And now we're back at Tammy's office. Greg tells Buddy and Tammy, He's ready. But he says, out of sight, dynamite. And he's wearing embroidered bell-bottom jeans and a t-shirt with butterflies on it again. And he has a butterfly patch on his butt. On his butt. Uh, I mean, butterflies must be Buddy's brand or something. Yeah, I guess so. Well, you know. Yeah. He uh, embraces his masculinity and his feminine side. He does seem Same very time. masculine. The 70s. Yes, I, that's what I liked about him. He's kind of virile, but he was also yeah, like hippies. Did you, did you look at the front of his jeans? No. Okay. That, oh. Why is there something to see? Yeah. Yeah. You can um, see uh, the outline of his yeah, virility. Greg says, what's next? And Tammy says, sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. So later in Tammy's office, she introduces Greg to a very 70s looking guy with, you know, bushy hair and a beard, vest. He says he's the PR guy. Tammy calls a group of girls in and tells them to do their thing. They paw at Greg and rip his clothes while a guy takes photos. Tammy says, terrific. They rip that shirt like it was made out of saran wrap. I know. You know, it's funny too, Is and I know most of the people who listen to us are probably in our generation pre-internet, but there's no internet. So she would have to, you know, send that to teen magazines and stuff as part of the PR. They don't say it, but my impression is those girls were hired and paid yes, to do that. Yes, of course they were. They took the photos, yes, to send yes. out as PR photos. Buddy introduces Greg to his attorney and says he has papers he needs to eyeball. It's all got to be legal, you dig? <laughs> That's what he says. Yeah. Later, Buddy, Tammy, and Greg come in. Buddy has a tape from the recording session, and he can't wait for them to hear it. And I want to point out, they get an A for continuity, because Greg is still wearing 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> it's like nobody even said, hey, Greg, here's a T-shirt or oh, I know. Here, here's the Johnny Bravo jacket. I know. I mean, I know. And the shirt's really ripped. It's hanging. Know. It is. It's, hanging. it's hanging off. Bunny says, a beat that's sweet and a jive that's alive. Far out. <laughs> so Bunny's playing the music and he's dancing. He's dancing to the music, yeah. which sounds really crappy. And I've got to say, they could have had an overproduced song, but none of the music yeah. on this well, show And was what good. they did, and if for people who haven't watched the episode, is they added all this electronic buzz, and you can barely hear Greg's voice. It's, like, very electronic sounding. And, you know, I have to say that Friends stole this concept for mm-hmm. when Phoebe, somebody wanted to record Smelly Cat, and then they made a video of her, and it was very distorted, right. and it didn't suck her. And to Greg's credit, Greg's like, that's not me. That's yes. not my voice. Greg doesn't like it. He says, you can't hear the words. And Buddy says, of course not, which I hate that stereotype me of too. you can't tell the me words. Too. Greg says, that's not the way I sound. And Buddy says, don't get caught up in an ego trip. It's not your sound. It's the sound. There's a lot of work in that record, which is true. There was a lot of work in producing records. Greg says, well, what do you need me for? And Tammy says, because you fit the suit. And that, my friends, Greg, became one yes. of the biggest catchphrases ever yeah, for the show. Although the I think Barry Williams, I didn't see it in his book here, but I thought I saw it somewhere. When Lloyd, we, Lloyd talks about it. That, that How he and his dad... Yeah, I couldn't find that anecdote, but it, it didn't occur to them. And I guess rightly so that that would become as big a catchphrase. A lot of the catchphrases that Lloyd said that in one of the other, it might have been in that same excerpt that a lot of the ones like, oh, my, or something suddenly came oh, my up. Nose, right. My nose, right. Our mom said, oh, never play ball. Right, <laughs> right. But you never know. Greg says, that's it. That's the only reason you wanted me. And so he rips up his contract and walks out, which as Lloyd points out in his book, you can't really do that. But, you know, it's a TV show. But he says, well, that suit never did fit right in the shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> now we're back. <laughs> he didn't seem to care. I have a question, though, just actually just came to me why even bother with the pretense of a recording session then well they needed the music to add all that shit to yeah but they could have had anybody do it they didn't have yeah, to have greg have. that's true it could have been like a Millie vanilli thing yeah back at the brady house greg is in the living room still still wearing his ripped shirt he's telling mike and carol they didn't want him they wanted a robot Carol says he saved his dad a trip to see them, which doesn't seem to annoy Greg at all. It would annoy me. Mike says he's very pleased. Mike asks if it's the end of Greg's singing career. And Greg says, no, it's the end of Johnny Bravo. Greg Brady still has a singing career. And why would he ask that? Well, Mike was hoping... Greg would go to Norton and, you know, I don't know. architect. He knows Greg no, can't be already, an architect. Right. Cut to the Brady's singing a crappy song on the Hal Barton show. You the know, choreography want, is really bad. Right. The lip syncing is bad. I just want to say, I thought that the song at the beginning was the worst song ever, but this <laughs> song is even worse. Just a bad song. Uh, the girls are wearing granny dresses and the boys have white pants and ugly big shop collar shirts. But that yeah. was, you know, that was the stuff. And Marsha, I can't remember who else, have fake singing accents. Well, of course they do. Only Marsha and Greg sing. 
this, well the marsha has a fake singing accent yeah, i mean the others might be going doo doo or something in the background but they barely right. make into anything right. i don't understand the point of that the if they're gonna goes, have a song if they're gonna have a group with all of them then they should all be singing something and it goes on and on and on. i know it's long alice and mike and carol are backstage with hal barton watching i also want to say as far as the song being bad one word you should never have in a song, it's a nice word and it's important word, is the word humanity. Mm. It just never really fits. It just doesn't, it's just not a pop or rock song word. Okay. You just shouldn't have it. And also, if you take the two songs out of this episode, the story itself takes up about 15 minutes, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Mike and Carol are in their bedroom. Greg comes in with some college pamphlets. He likes both Norton and State, but he says he's not going to either. He's going to take some time off to travel. Then he wants the keys to the car. And Mike's like, oh, well, you silly. And like, right. kicks him out. And my thing is, yeah, he does have some pamphlets. But he lives in fucking California, which has like a million colleges and universities. As well as the other 49 states having a million colleges and universities. The only two choices are Norton and State. I, know. I believe at the t- in the 70s, state colleges in California were free. You had some really good schools. And also, um, that's another thing, and I know the show is fake, but... I think the California state college system is huge. So Carol wouldn't be like yes. state. She would be like, you know, University state, of California, yeah, yeah, Berkeley, Berkeley, or, Berkeley or yeah, whatever. Or LA or whatever. Right. But, so that was episode one. And I think that's one a lot of people remember. Yes. Even though because of copyright, it's not in streaming. It, it must have been a rerun, though, because yeah. I saw it many times. I think a lot of people's memories of the Brady Bunch are not so much from streaming, which is fairly recent. But the people our age, it's just from watching those shows over and over, over and over and over. And we and didn't over. care if we'd already seen I it. I know, it felt like you had it memorized. It's like, oh, this is the one where, you know, right. Johnny Bravo. Like, like, and like it was who the same cares that, was, that we've already seen? It was the same thing with Star Trek that was on yes. when we got home from school. Yeah. Oh, this is the one where everybody gets old. It, when you only have four channels, you're just like, okay, right. I'm going to watch this. Right. Because the way right. it was. It was the way it was. Season five, episode two, Mail Order Hero. The beginning shot shows an oval. It shows the house, but it has a little oval with a picture of Joe Namath telling us he's a special guest. Yes, and for people who may not be aware, I cannot emphasize how big a star Joe Namath was. was You could know nothing about football and know joe namath he was all well, over he was TV. handsome he, he had those dimples right those and big blue eyes he was a big star he led the jets in 1969 to the first super bowl championship he was just ubiquitous yes, he, he was, was on every talk and show. again i know I, I said it in the last one but there was more limited amount of stuff right coming at you right like for sports i think sports stars were even bigger stars back then because there wasn't all this other stuff around. Right. There, there were, were four the, channels yeah. on TV. But I do want to say that Joe's star fell a little. I can't remember what year <laughs> it was, but he was on the <laughs> sidelines of some football game drunk. And the woman, the live shot, the woman's sidelines reporter. Yes. He's like, I want to kiss you. <laughs> And um, it was really gross. He's on an old people's like insurance commercial or something now. And he's very skinny in his big ears. Yeah. He must be like 80. 
Yeah, he's old. Yeah. I also want to say, too, before we get too into this, and this will happen once we finish Brady Bunch and get, get to the Mod Squad, I always feel that when there's a celebrity appearance, whether they're playing themselves or playing someone else, I feel it totally distracts. Not that the Brady Bunch has these great storylines or anything, but I feel like it's almost like the storyline isn't significant enough. They don't try yeah. that hard. And they don't, it's usually it's like, just oh, look here, storyline. You know, yeah. here's Joe Namath. We don't have to. Exactly. Um, but anyway. So it shows the boys' room. Bobby's sleeping. He's having a dream in which he's playing football in his backyard, which is also a football field. Which, you know, it's a dream. So whatever. Mm-hmm. Bobby is advising, they're in the huddle. He's advising Joe Namath about what play to use. And the play they're going to use is called the bomb. It's just Bobby and Joe on their team and a bunch <laughs> of kids on the other team, Bobby's friends. Bobby flies into the air and catches the football and makes a touchdown. Joe shrieks in delight and picks Bobby up and hugs him. And he says, what would I do without you? And Bobby's like, I don't know. And Bobby has a smile on his face as he uh, sleeps. He's so cute. And the next scene is the Brady backyard. Bobby is playing football with his friends. Then they take a break from their little game. One kid who looks like Bobby's younger brother looks a lot like and, him. And I believe he is Todd Lookinland, oh. Bobby's younger brother. He's not credited in this they only credit two of the kids of the like four they do that sometimes especially when it's but he comes up later in this season when they do the thing for the spinoff that i don't think kelly's Kelly's kids where they uh, other family adopts three boys Mm -hmm. and he's one of them he's so this kid he says his dad's cousin was on a plane ride all the way from chicago with hank aaron Mm. and hank aaron was was big too yes baseball player that's nothing, says another kid. I know someone who knows Lee Trevino's caddy. And Lee Trevino was a golfer back yeah. in the 70s. The third kid says, that's nothing. My dad was on the same elevator with Wilt Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. And he stood right next to him. He said his dad's shoulder was rubbing <laughs> rubbing <laughs> on Wilt, Wilt's, Wilt's knee. <laughs> Wilt was very tall. <laughs> I think the last time we recorded this, we we made when his shoulder could be rubbing. He also had sex with a hundred thousand women or whatever he. Well, said he had sex with thirty thousand women. Oh, thirty thousand, yeah. But somebody figured out and said it would be almost impossible to have sex with that. Yeah. If he had a lot of group sex, he could have had, he could claim the 30,000. It's not all one-on-one. I mean, I'm not saying he did, but no. anyone that doesn't know what we're talking about, you have to Google. You look it up. Yeah. But this was way before that. The kid asks Bobby if he knows anyone important. And Bobby deflects. He says he doesn't like to brag, but they persist. And now let's think about it. Greg's teacher dated Wes Parker, who was a, was he a pitcher? Yeah, for, for the Dodgers. Dodgers. Yeah, Peter met Deacon Jones, who was a big football player. Yeah, um, Greg met Don Drysdale, because one of the biggest ever. Who was Greg? Thought he was going to become a great right. uh, <laughs> baseball player. Greg, who never gets carried away. <laughs> Marsha met both Desi Arnaz Jr. and Davy Jones, but right. Bobby cannot think of anybody no. famous no. to brag about. No. So he tells them he knows Joe Namath. Right. One kid says the New York Jets quarterback. And it's like, no kid, the other Joe Namath. Right. The writers could have found a better way. Like the kid could have even said, as if you know the New York Jets quarterback or something, 
Because nobody's going to say the New York Jets quarterback. Bobby says he, quote, knows him a lot. <laughs> he tells his friends that Joe has dinner at their house whenever he's in town. And I have two but, words for Bobby. Two words. You know what I'm going to say? Davy Jones. Well, yeah. The Davy, Davy Jones, because we have seen this before. Go on. Though the difference between this and that is that Marsha actually had a letter from Davy Jones and he was saying anything I can right. do or some bullshit like right. that. So at least she had the expectation, even if it was, you know, perfect. Good, good an- analysis. Still. Yeah. The kids say, well, we can we meet him? And see, if I were Bobby, I'd say, no, he likes to. Right. I'm not even supposed low. to be telling you guys this. It's yeah. a big secret. But Bobby's stupid. Bobby tries to cut the conversation short, saying it's time for dinner. Cindy is walking by with a can of trash and he asks her if it's time to wash up. And she says, dinner isn't for another two hours. <laughs> I'm like, he's crazy. One kid tells Bobby he must be excited about that exhibition game with Joe Namath next week in L.A. Bobby's like, oh, shit. (laughs) The other kid says, wow, we'll get to meet Joe Namath. And the other kid says, I'm going to tell my dad. (laughs) They run off. Bobby, Bobby, Uh, Bobby. Bobby looks stunned as his words echo in his ears (laughs) along with his friends. We'll get to meet Joe Namath, Joe Namath, Joe Namath. How fast, how fast things can all go so bad. (laughs) Oh, God. So next is Greg's room. Peter and Greg are there. Greg is reading something and says, this is a good composition. Then he asks Peter, why did you get a C minus? Peter says, read the last line. And Greg reads it and it says, if George Washington never told a lie, how come he got so far in politics? And they both laugh. Uh-huh, and to me, that uh-huh. sounds like it was a, probably a pretty shitty essay. You yeah, know, just stupid. Blah, it's stupid. Bobby comes up holding a football. Bobby asks that how they'd like to have Joe Namath over for dinner. And they say, great, when's he coming? And Bobby <laughs> says, it depends on if either one of you know him. And Greg says, have you flipped? What makes you think either one of us know him? And Bobby says, well, you guys are older and have more opportunity to meet people. And now I'm desperate. Greg asks what happened. And Bobby tells him how stupid he is. Peter tells him to run away and join the circus. Greg says, you can tell the truth or produce Joe Namath. Peter says, honesty is the best policy, especially when nothing else works. Mm-hmm. Bobby says, yeah, he's going to go call the guys. Yeah, but, you know, it's like this either or. You have to do this or you have to do that. And there is the third choice. You brought it yes, up make a little while up. ago. Make something up. Joe's very private. And when he comes over, he doesn't want people to know this isn't, you know, a dog and pony show for you guys. Or Joe couldn't make it this time. He's got a full schedule. Yes. And, he and if, you, if you're a true con artist, you know how to deflect. You know how to right. figure those things out. Right. His friends I've just know- been listening to a lot of true crime things about con, yeah. con artists. They always His- have a story to cover. Right. His friends don't seem that smart. But then <laughs> again, there would not be a plot for this I know, episode. I know. Cindy is in the living room on the phone. She keeps saying, that's awful. She sees Bobby coming down the stairs. She says goodbye to Barbara, who she's talking to, and tells Bobby that Barbara's brother and friends all think Joe Namath is coming to dinner. And the question I have about the scene is Cindy is on the phone and she keeps going, that's awful. That's awful. That's awful. Now, if she's saying that's awful, that means she's telling Barbara that it's not true. So that right. word should get around. Yeah, Cindy's phone conversation either does not fit the scene the way it's supposed to at all, or 
Barbara is stupid and doesn't say why is it awful or you know or Cindy has said no we don't know Joe Namath he's not coming over here but in any case it could have been much better done not by Susan Olsen but by the stupid show's writers it's another thing that could easily have been a better just a better moment in many ways so Barbara is the sister of one of Bobby's friends Bobby says oh my entire life is ruined yeah it's that Eric one the one who gets the most lines yes and so now we're in Mike's den and Bobby is telling Mike and Carol what happened and Carol says we don't even know Joe Namath do we Mike and I'm like oh women they're so silly you don't if you don't know him I mean And I think the point by the male writer of this show is women are so silly that they don't even know if their husband knows Joe Namath or not. And they don't even know how famous Joe Namath is, apparently, that they have no chance knowing him. Mike and Carol give a mini lecture Mm -hmm. to Bobby asking him what he's going to do about it. Mike says he wishes he knew Joe Namath, but he doesn't. They're actually nicer to him than I'd be. What I'd be like, what the fuck is wrong yeah, with you? You and your big fucking pie. But I would also kids. say, tell the fucking kids that Joe Name is too busy. Right. Bobby says thanks anyway and leaves. Carol looks at Mike and she just looks at him like sadly. And Mike says, he's got to learn when you bluff somebody, they may call you on it. Mike relishes these moments when oh, he yeah. can when he can see one of his kids going for a big fall. Yeah. Carol says, if Mike really tried, he could think of someone who does know him. Mike says, yeah, Howard, <laughs> Howard Cosell. <laughs> and then Carol's like, really? And Mike says, but I don't know Howard Cosell. And, and I don't like, think Carol knows who Howard Cosell she, is right. Oh, she's so silly. Women and if, for so those of silly. you that don't know. He was a big Howard broadcaster Co- for ABC. Probably almost as famous as Joe Namath. He was on yeah, TV. He was quite famous. If you're watching TV, sports on TV, Chances are you were listening to Howard Cosell, who yes. had a very distinctive voice. Yes, he did. Living room. Bobby is dialing the phone. I thought he was calling his friends, but no, he's calling the stadium. He leaves a phone message for Joe Namath to call him. And then he hangs up and looks very, like, satisfied. Mm-hmm. So even when I was a kid, I thought, as if Joe Namath's going to be like, oh, okay, I better return this call. Right. <laughs> and now we're in the family room. Jan is wrapping Alice up in bandages. We haven't had a scene in a while where Alice has been made to look humiliated and ridiculous. So here we do have one. Yes. Alice's arms are pinned to her sides and her torso is bandaged. Marcia is looking on. And says, anyone who needs that much bandaging is far too gone to be saved. And Jan's like, well, I have to, something about how having to keep the torso, I don't, she explains why she's doing yeah, it Yeah, it's way. bullshit. Marcia goes to do her homework. Jan says she needs to get more bandages and she'll be right back. The phone rings. Okay, the house is full of people. Yes, there are eight other people in the house. Not one of them can answer the fucking yeah, phone, but the woman who not. can't use her arms... Alice hops over. She has no arms, remember, to answer the phone. She (laughs) knocks the phone off the hook and it falls on the floor. So she has to get down on the floor to answer the phone. And yes, making Alice look like an idiot. It's Bobby's pal, Eric, on the phone. Alice calls Bobby to come to the phone. Bobby comes, steps over Alice saying, is it Joe? It's not Joe. It's Eric. Eric said he heard on the radio that Joe got to town and wonders if Joe has called Bobby yet. It's like, mm. yeah, the first fucking thing Joe's going to do. Oh, I better call <laughs> yeah, Bobby. Better call the Bobby Brady. Bobby says, no, I have a call in to Joe. He hasn't called me back yet, which is true. 
Eric says, let me know so I can meet him. And Bobby says he has to get off the phone. Joe may be trying to call him. And back then, well, it's still true with cell phones. If, if you're on the phone. So but at least with a cell phone, you can leave a voicemail or yeah, you can true. see the other person called. Oh, that's true. With uh, that's those true. dial phones, man. You only got a busy luck. signal. You, you didn't even know luck. someone was trying to call right. you. He hangs up and steps over Alice, who yells at him. She's like, aren't you going to help me? He's like, I can't lift you. <laughs> and she's like, well, you can take the bandages off. Right. You can unwrap like, oh, me. Okay. And I just and then, want to point out, too, that there was several minutes where Alice was not able to do her dusting, cleaning, and cooking. And I and wonder also, if what the fuck happened to jail? Well, I'm going to say, I wonder if that could be deducted from, would be deducted from her salary since the Brady's oh, are yeah. so... You know, you know, she wasn't doing her jobs. Now we're in the girls' room, and Jan wants to bandage Cindy's phone. I guess she totally forgot about Alice. And I and I just want to point out that I am getting really annoyed by this stupid subplot of Jan wrapping bandages. I know it is pretty stupid. Yeah. Marsha is at her desk reading the newspaper. Hmm. Marsha says, Mike Connors is far out. What a guy. And Mike Connors was the star of the show Mannix. I loved Mike Connors. I loved him, He's too. very rugged. And now I look back and I'm like, mm, kind of sketchy. I can smell the cigarette smoke walking right. off him. But back then, I thought he was... He was. Yeah. He's, he was rugged, man. Yeah. yeah I really liked him. Marsha tells them a sick little girl wrote to Mike Connors and said she wanted to meet him. And he went 1,200 miles out of his way just to meet her. And Cindy's listening and the gears, you can see the gears in her mm-hmm. brain start going when mm-hmm. she hears this news. Yes. So now it's the Brady house at night. We're in the girls' room. Jan and Marsha are asleep. Cindy gets up and she goes over to the desk and turns on the light, which does not wake up either one of her sisters, surprisingly. She starts writing a letter at the desk. There's a voiceover of the letter she's writing and she's writing as bobby but it's her voice and it's saying that he's very very sick morning at the brady house jan and marcia collect their lunches jan tells carol she has a first day meeting in the afternoon and marcia says yes i've agreed to be her victim so she must have to demonstrate her bandaging skills Bobby is on his bed reading a magazine mike comes in and asks why he's not going to school bobby says he feels sick Mike says he doesn't have a temperature. And Mike says Bobby is chicken. He's afraid to face the kids at school. Mm-hmm. And Mike says, you have to go to school. And now we have an outside shot of the stadium. Was it the same one that they have now or is this a new one? I now? didn't. LA. I don't remember. I didn't um, see what in, it looked like. Um, but I, I assume it's supposed to be the L.A. Coliseum. Joe Namath is coming into an office. He says hello to Herb, who is this another cigarette smelling looking guy. He looks like he smokes about 10 packs a day and asks if he has mail. Herb says he has a ton of it, but Joe should read this one letter first. If Joe were with the Jets, New York Jets, he would not be getting next day mail at the L.A. Coliseum. Robert Reed. Less than 24. I know. I'm having a Robert Reed moment about (laughs) Yeah, well, I want to know how she wrote the letter the night before and suddenly it's in the morning now. And and I know it's a fiction show, but they could have, again, done it differently. Like somehow one of the kids got through to him on the phone. And went to the stadium and and, and entreated him to do it. You know, I mean, they could have been. Anyway. I mean, yeah. Herb starts reading the letter. Joe's going through his phone, holding, looking at his phone message while Herb's reading the letter. He's read the letter to Joe. 
Joe says, hey, Bobby Brady, I have a phone message from him too. He reads the letter and says, oh, it sounds serious. Maybe we can stop over after practice. I hope it's not too late. I know. <laughs> it's like it That's makes you wonder what she said in the letter. Right. A lot of times when non-actors play themselves, like they're famous for something else, they don't do a really good job. Right. They're stiff. But Joe... I thought he was very good, yeah. very natural. Like we um, said at the beginning, yeah, he just really seemed like himself yes. being himself, yeah. In fact, in 1978, he was in a sitcom called The Waverly Wonders, okay. and I actually remembered the name of the show. Wow. He played yeah. a basketball coach, not a football coach. That was a very short-lived right. time. It was probably right. less than a season. But wow. I remembered that he was in that show. But he has a very good presence, good comedic timing i thought he did the job yeah so next scene brady kitchen alice is serving something putting something on plates from it looks like a frying pan and at first i thought it was hamburgers bobby and cindy walk in and alice tells them they're fresh brownies so maybe it's not a frying pan but i kept looking it looked like a frying pan bobby declines if i had someone like alice though i would be like 500 pounds me too if i walked in and someone was giving me fresh brownies every day oh me too um, man alice is incredulous that bobby turned down the brownies cindy is not going to turn them down cindy sits down she tells alice that bobby had a bad time at school alice said oh because he doesn't know joe namath and cindy says no they gave him such a bad time he couldn't bring himself to tell the truth so i think people were accusing him of not knowing him right the phone rings and cindy answered it's herb he tells cindy he's the pr man for the exhibition as if the pr man would not ask to speak to an adult or a parent no shit he asks how bobby is she says he's awful he just turned down brownies and Herb says, the letter almost broke Joe's heart. Aww. Cindy says, that's wonderful. I mean, that's sad. <laughs> Herb says, they'll drop by at 530. And Cindy says, great. Cindy hangs up and starts to run away. And Alice says, hey, wait a minute. What was that all about? And it's like, what is that? Your business, Alice. Right. Cindy says it was a wrong number and runs out to the living room. Alice looks confused by that. She doesn't seem to be suspicious, just confused. Now we're in the boys' room. Bobby is in bed and he's looking sad. He's twirling a football. Cindy runs in and says, Joe Namath is coming. And Bobby doesn't believe it. She tells him about the letter. Bobby is going to call his friends. And Cindy says, no, you have to get sick. Now the front door. Alice answers the door. It's Joe Namath and Herb. And Alice is very excited. Right. And she's like, you're Joe Namath. And, and he in, just stands there. Oh. In Barry Williams' book, he says Joe's wearing a leisure suit, but he's actually not. He's wearing a oh. denim coat. It's not like a denim jacket, like a jeans jacket, but it is a de denim, like, double-breasted type yes, coat. Yes, yes, yes. Now we'll have that typical scene where two people are talking and they are not on the same wavelength. Right, but Alice unwittingly plays yes, into the she narrative. Does. Joe asks Alice how Bobby is feeling, and she says, oh, awful, but this will be the best medicine for him. And he and that herb guy are, like, looking all concerned. Right. Alice says she'll go get Bobby, and Joe's like, can you walk? Do you, do you have to carry him? And Alice is like, no. She's <laughs> like, God, that was weird. And Herb says, can we go up to his room? And Alice is like, sure. And I'm like, yeah, why not? Just let two strange right? men two strange go men. up into this young boy's room. Yeah, yep. my thoughts was that. Close the door and lock yep. it while you're in, up there. Cindy is spying from the top of the stairs, of course, and sees them and she runs off. 
Allison's the two upstairs. She says it's the first door to the right, which is not how I pictured the room. For some reason, I thought it was on the no, left. No, it should have been on the left, yeah. In Bobby's room, Cindy runs in and makes Bobby get into bed. She holds his hand. Bobby sits up when they come in and introduces Cindy. Joe says Bobby seems better than he did in the letter, which causes Bobby to start moaning, <laughs> moaning and acting <laughs> sick. Alice is down at the bottom of the steps looking up as if she's not allowed to go any further. Right. The phone rings and she answers it. It's Mike. He's still at work. For once, Mike is still at work at 530 at night. Usually he's home by two or three in the afternoon. I know. It's like, what the hell, Mike? Mr. Phillips must have been there. Mike wants to talk to Bobby, but Alice says he's busy. Mike says he found somebody who knows somebody who knows Joe Namath. And Alice says, me too. Me. (laughs) Mike is like, what? And Alice tells Mike. And Mike is like, you don't know Joe Namath. He's very disdainful. Very (laughs) bitch. Alice tells Mike that Joe is there. And so Mike says he'll be right home. Next scene is Bobby's room. Joe is sitting on the bed. He asks Bobby if there's anything he could do for him. Bobby says, yes, come to dinner. And Joe says he has to leave right after the game. Herb gives Joe a photograph to autograph for Bobby. And Bobby wants Joe to sign it. And Joe's like, what do you want me to write? So Bobby (laughs) says, sign it for my great friend, Bobby Brady, at whose house I always have dinner when I'm in town. I'm sorry I won't get the chance to meet some of his friends like Eddie Clark, Teddy Handler, and then there's a bunch of other names. And especially Eric Plunker, who refused to believe that I'm really good friends with Bobby (laughs) Brady. (laughs) And Joe's writing, Joe's laughing. Joe's just writing it and Herb's like, um... Are you sure you want to write on that? Joe's like, whatever he wants. Right. And you'd think uh, Joe would be catching on. You'd think Joe would be catching on that this isn't totally kosher. But Joe was never the brightest ball no. in the chandelier. So. No, he wasn't. And he has such a big heart. He's worried yes, about this kid. Big, yes, he is. That's true. Downstairs, Alice is dusting. And it's <laughs> like, where's dinner? Isn't it like I 6 know. p.m.? Carol and Jan and Marsha come in. Jan did a great job on her first aid test. In- inexplicably carrying a stretcher. And yes, in a second, listeners, you will see how this ties in with the plot. Yes. But yeah, it's very, it's like nonsensical. Alice tells Carol she has great news. Carol says, what? And Alice points to the stairs where Joe and Herb are descending. Joe says, Hi. He says, oh, look, we just barely made it before the stretcher got here. And he's all like, <laughs> Does Joe really think two teenage girls are carrying a stretcher upstairs to take Bobby, like what, to the morgue or the hospital? Or... Carol says hi and introduces the girls. She says it was so nice of him to come over. He says it was the least he could do. Carol says, well, you got here in the nick of time. <laughs> Bobby was just about at the end of his rope. And Joe looks perturbed. Yes. Mike comes in the front door and Carol introduces Mike. Herb says, this whole thing must be pretty upsetting. Mike says, well, when you have six kids, (laughs) something like this is bound to happen to one of them. Joe says, you don't seem to be taking this very seriously. He has a very concerned look on his face. Carol says, well, no reason to get upset over a problem like this. Mike says, how did you find out about it? And Joe takes out the letter and hands it to Mike and Carol. Carol says, that's Cindy's writing. Mike starts to read the letter and he gets a very, like, look on his face. Mike. Mike And he says, we owe you an apology. I feel right here, Mike has to tell the truth, not because it's the right thing to do, but because 
it's a chance to dick around one of his kids. Yes. The kids were putting something over on you. Alice says the two kids must have cooked it up between them. Mm-hmm. And Marsha and Jan fill in Joe on the rest. Mm-hmm. Cindy and Bobby come downstairs. Bobby is, of course, wearing a robe. Yes, of course. Joe is smiling. Bobby admits to Joe he's not really sick. Cindy apologizes, too. Bobby says Joe can have the picture back. Joe says it was kind of flattering that someone wanted to see him that badly. Mike says they'll be penalized for an illegal procedure, though. (laughs) Mike's need to punish is just ramping up right here. Even though Joe's cool with it, Mike needs to punish. Joe wants to throw some passes with Bobby. They're in the backyard. The next scene, they're in the backyard with all Bobby's friends. Mm-hmm. Bobby tells them he never met Joe Namath until today, and they scoff at him. Right? They say, "You don't expect us to believe that, do you?" And then that one, <laughs> that one kid goes, "I'm going to tell my dad," and then they all <laughs> run off. And it's a win-win for Bobby. He tells the truth, and they don't believe him. So that's yeah. great. He gets points for telling the truth. Mike and Carol laugh and smile at Bobby and he shrugs at them and they shrug back. Oh, what can you do? I told the truth. The trickery worked. And now we've got the tag. We're in Mike's den. And Mike tells Carol, it was nice of Joe Namath to give them the tickets to the game. And Carol says it was nice of Mike to give theirs away to Bobby's friends. But why? Mike sits on the couch with her and says, he had an ulterior motive. (laughs) They can be alone. But then he says, oh, it's more comfortable to watch it at home on TV. And Carol hits him in the face with a pillow. And I feel like Mike, just as a man, not even anything to do with him being gay or anything, was just so turned on by Joe's virility that he he had to have some of Carol. And speaking of being turned on, there are several versions of how Florent Henderson liked Joe Namath and what what happened in that last scene with the passes. So I'll read you Barry Williams first. Barry Williams says, first of all, he says, despite the plot, which Barry disdained, like me, said it was a repeat of the Davy Jones plot. Yes. He said, despite the plot, this was one of the most enjoyable episodes we ever filmed. Joe was terrific. Florence was nuts about the guy. And in the end, threw herself at him in the Mm -hmm. Brady's ass to turf backyard. (laughs) He says, Florence made no bones about her infatuation with the handsome number 12. She was simply nuts about the guy and her behavior on the set during the visit made that fact crystal clear. I think maybe Barry was a little jealous. All week long, she flirted with Joe, hugged him, teased him, and finally... Well, maybe I should let her tell it. And then he has Florence Henderson. This is in Barry's book saying, all right, I was crazy about Joe Namath. And I remember his last scene took place in the fake driveway where Joe was supposed to say goodbye to all the Brady's. So with the cameras rolling, he said goodbye to the kids and to Mike and to Alice. But when he got to me, I jumped up on him wrapped my thighs around his waist and said, take me, take me with you, Joe. I can't, I can't stand this family anymore. And he, just, and he just said, sure, Mrs. Brady, and carried me off the set. Oh, my God. So that's... I um, wish they had that. If someone had the film of that, that would have been pretty funny. Yeah. In the book, The Brady Bunch book by Andrew Edelstein and Frank Lovici, they say Ann B. Davis, Alice, remembers being fascinated by the fact that when Joe walked, he walked so tentatively because of those rotten knees of his. He had really bad knee damage. Oh, uh, yeah. 
Of course, this is MB Davis again. Of course, the minute the camera started turning, he bounced like he was on the field. Florence Henderson adds to her story here and says that when she says, get me out of here, I hate this family, and kissed him, and Joe's face got bright red, and that's when he carried her to the car. So he really did carry her to the car. Lloyd Schwartz, never one to not take credit for stuff, says of the thing, I don't get nervous talking to movie stars or politicos, but sports stars, I get a little tongue-tied. When we did an episode about a football star, we were able to cast Joe Namath. It was just a couple of years after his incredible upset victory with the Jets over the Colts in the Super Bowl, and he was still everyone's football hero. He claims in this that the storyline was, quote, a completely original idea. (laughs) And I'm like, really? Nowadays, writing staffs develop stories for shows by finding ways to twist episodes that they've seen before. Maybe that's a product of television being over 50 years old, but I think it shows a serious lack of creativity, a lack of respect for the creative process to settle for something that's already been done. And I have to say, Lloyd has a lot of chutzpah for saying any of that because so many of these storylines, including this one, are retreads. He goes, on the contrary, when Dad, Howard, the story editor, and I would get together to discuss a story idea, we would reject it if we'd seen a show like it. That is not to say that all of our episodes were ablaze with creativity, but we never deliberately copied anything. One of the most original shows was our episode with Joe Namath. Oh, please. And we were, that's funny because Barry Williams calls it a retread of the Davy Jones episode. Which you and I both noticed too. Yes. We were sitting in the office trying to figure out a way to get a celebrity into an episode in a unique but logical manner. (laughs) That was our task. And we put that question to ourselves. How would we ourselves be able to accomplish it? Better yet, how would a kid manage to get a star to come to his house? It came to us just like it came to Bobby and Cindy in this episode. I had seen in the news that actor Mike Connors, Mannix, did a bit of charity visiting a children's hospital and was happy to be there for the kids. What if Bobby pretended he was dying? Would that work? Would that lure a good-hearted star? Of course it would. Since we didn't want to be too morbid, we decided that Bobby wouldn't pretend to be dying. He'd just pretend to be sick. But that really never got across in the show. This is Maureen. I feel like there was an implication that maybe he... Well, Joe seemed to think he was dying. I know. It also enabled us to have great fun at the end of the episode when Mike, not aware of his children's scheme, arrives home to find Joe Namath in his living room. Uh, Mike already knew Joe was there. Namath Uh is very concerned about Bobby, whereas Mike Brady, thinking Bobby merely has a cold, no, he doesn't. He doesn't think that at all. Hey, things like this happen with a smile. Of course, the Brady kids learn a valuable lesson about lying and what happens, but I also learned something that trying to come up with an episode is easier if you merely ask yourself, what would I do? Having Namath on the set was great fun. Florence, being Florence, even threw herself into his arms. Everybody went up to talk football, just like we all had talked baseball with Don Drysdale in a previous episode. I even got a great picture of me showing Joe Namath how to throw a pass. That is <laughs> I also had the chance to take him aside and ask him the all-important question, how are the Jets going to do this year? Joe smiled and said, we're going to win it all again. I went home after filming and found a bookie and put money on the Jets because I had inside info from Joe Namath. The Jets went 4-10. and 10. 
Well, season five, episode three is Snow White and the Seven Bradys. Mm. In Barry Williams' book, he has this at the end of season four. So maybe they filmed it then and put it in season five. I don't see any explanation anywhere about that. Barry also says it's one of the worst plot lines and. He said it shows how much they were really struggling for storylines at this point in the series. I actually didn't. I didn't mind. I thought it was funny, though. I I don't think it was any worse than many of their plot lines. No. (laughs) I also think it was one of the stronger Cindy-based plot lines. I think Cindy got to act more mature. She had some scenes she got to act her age and actually do some critical thinking and kind of be in charge of things and not she, there were no points at all in this when she was babyish or yes had to act like a little baby just for that i give this episode a little bit of a thumbs up just because we saw a different um yes. more mature cindy so anyway they show the brady house at the beginning the station wagon pulls into the driveway carol gets out of the station wagon walks towards the house she's wearing a cute navy blue red white and blue outfit her purse and shoes match. She's very smart. She turns and looks back at the car and then walks back to the car. Cindy is sitting in the passenger seat. Carol says, come on, let's go in. And Cindy doesn't want to. Cindy says, can't we make a deal? And Carol says, she's not Monty Hall. Let's make a deal was a huge game show. And Monty Hall was the host. Everyone dressed up in costumes. <laughs> yeah. Why did they dress up in costumes? I don't know. It was just part of the silly audience. Carol says, making a deal is what got us in this all this trouble. Cindy gets out of the car and she's wearing a dress that is way too short. A baby doll dress. The girl is 12 years old. She's right. like in fifth or sixth grade. Come on. She's right. wearing a dress where her ass is hanging out. Yeah, I was a little disturbed by it. Cindy offers to mow the lawn or wash the car. Carol says, nope. Cindy has to march straight into the house and tell her father what she did. Cindy wants to tell him from the phone, like from Florida, maybe. (laughs) Cindy says, how can a little kid like me have such a big mouth? And I want to say that when Marcia was this age, she and Jan dressed normally. Yes. They weren't wearing a baby doll dress. Right. It wasn't like a miniskirt. I'm just saying. I, I agree. I agree. Next scene is Mike's den. Mike is looking at a little architectural model. That he must have made. Cindy and Carol come in. He asks, how did the meeting at school go? Because that's Carol's job to go to those things. Yeah. Carol prompts Cindy to tell him. Cindy says she has great news. Great, Carol says. And Cindy Hmm. says, well, it's better than saying it's awful. And Mike wants to know what the news is. Cindy says everyone's favorite teacher, Mrs. Whitfield, is retiring and everyone wants to give her a gift. Carol says the gift is a first edition set of books that cost $200, which today would be worth $1,441.44. Wow. Mike wants to know how much of his money did she pledge? I know. And I'm, yeah, he's like, how much of my money did he pledge? And I'm like, well, that's a little, his money, that's a little coercive control So it's his money and they're all just living off his money. I found that very offensive. Cindy says nothing. Isn't that terrific? And no one can get to the fucking point in this family either. That's because they're afraid of Mike. I, I know. Carol says to tell him the not so terrific part. Cindy tells Mike that her idea was to put on a play to raise money. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. 
Mike thinks Cindy wants him to build the sets, but no, she volunteered the whole family to be in the play. Hmm. Mike sighs. Cindy says Mike is Prince Charming and Carol is Snow White. Mike wants to know why Carol let this happen. And Carol says it was too hard to stop the momentum once everyone started <laughs> applauding. And I was thinking, you know, the people in their school and everything must really hate the Brady. There must I be know. like, why are the Bradys There's always the trying Bradys. to put themselves on There's stage the and shit? Yeah, because I'm trying to figure out even the context of what that meeting must have been like and how this all could have happened the way it did. It just, I don't know. You know. Cindy gives Mike cow eyes and he says, fine, but she's going to have to tell the other kids. And Cindy runs off. Now we're in the girls' room and Jan says, Mrs. Whitfield was her favorite teacher and Marsha's favorite and even mom's favorite. And I thought, wait a minute, didn't Carol in an earlier episode say she was from Massachusetts? Yes. But whatever. Carol still could like her, but I'm just saying. I know. Jan says she'll do it if she can be dopey. Cindy says she saved the dopey part for herself. As this plays out, it would be nice to get some context on why everyone wants to be dopey. I know. Marsha's in the bathroom washing her face. She overheard and agrees to do it, but she wants to be dopey. Greg is in his room tuning his guitar. Cindy comes in and starts kissing his ass. He says she doesn't need to do that. He'll be glad to be in the play for Mrs. Whitfield, but he wants to be dopey. Cindy knocks on the boys' room door. Peter answers and says he'll do anything for Mrs. Whitfield, but he wants to be dopey. Bobby comes out from behind him and says he wants to be dopey. They start arguing and close the door. Cindy says, Snow White and the seven dopeys. And I'm like, you got that right. Mm -hmm. Alice is cooking in the kitchen. Cindy comes in. Alice wants to play Dopey, too. Cindy wants Alice to play the Wicked Queen in Alice's sight. Later, in the family room, all the kids and Mike are there. Carol comes in with a hat. She tells them all the dwarves' names are on pieces of paper, and what you pick is what you get. They all start yelling at once, and Mike tells them to shut Mike tells him to shut the fuck up. <laughs> I don't know what exactly he said, but it basically. Cindy picks first. She's grumpy. Bobby, he's bashful. Marsha is sleepy. Greg is stuck. Jan is happy. It's then they realize there are seven dwarves and only six of them. And I'm like, Duh. it's then they realize, like, I, I know that. That was bugging me from the beginning. I know. Duh. You know? Peter picks one of the last two slips of paper. He's sneezy. Everyone laughs. Carol says, we still need someone else. Marcia says, we can't be the six dwarves. Alice says, we'll just have to get an outsider to play Dopey. <laughs> someone who's not in the cult. <laughs> she said an outsider. I know. It's like, I know. Okay. Right then, Sam comes knocking on the glassless sliding door. Sam says he brought Alice's order. She says, she's has she got a part for him? And he's confused. Hmm. Now we're in the Brady driveway. Mike drives in his hammer sound in the background. Greg shows Mike a plywood pine tree and asks him how he likes it. Mike says to ask the three poodles next door. Peter is painting a tree, but it looks like crap. It's like the one that's finished looks good, but All right. I agree. Sucks. Yeah. Mike comes in the family room and kisses Carol, who is sewing costumes. She tells him she's reinforcing the seat of Sneezy's pants so they won't split when he sneezes. Mm. She does understand he's not really sneezing, doesn't she? Right. And then when the play finally comes, he's just wearing gym shorts. He's not wearing the (laughs) pants that she's sewing. In the kitchen, Alice is reading her script as she cooks and laughing evilly into a hand mirror. Mm -hmm. Mike scoffs at her. 
And I thought she was doing really well. I, don't know I did what too. Was. I did too. And then he leaves. Alice accidentally stirs the pot with the mirror and says, mirror, mirror in my soup. And oh, I saw that Alice, coming a mile away. Me too. Alice, Alice, Alice. She just... As soon, as soon as I saw her holding the mirror, I'm like, okay, you're going to stick that. Now it's the Brady house. It shows a nighttime shot of it, but it doesn't look like it's night inside. Mike comes down a stair. He wants to know if everyone is ready for rehearsal. Cindy and Carol are there. They're waiting for the others. The phone rings. Mike answers. It's for Cindy. It's Mr. Gundquist. It's the guy in charge of the theater. He tells Cindy the theater is rented for this Saturday. And she thought she told him that's the, the day she wanted it. Right. She says, but the tickets are printed already. She hangs up and is cheerful as she tells Mike and Carol about the mix-up. She says it's ruined and it's all my fault and cries and runs up the stair. My question is, why is an 11 or 12-year-old girl in charge of renting a theater? I know. With no adult supervision? <clears throat> exactly. Uh, she's a kid. Right. She wouldn't even be allowed to sign the, the paperwork fuck? to do the agreement. Uh, later in the girl's room, Cindy's crying on her bed. Carol comes in and tells Cindy she never thought she was a quitter. She's Car- channeling Mike. She does a very Mike-style Mike pep talk here. Yes. Carol says Cindy accepted a big responsibility and now she's just dropping it. Cindy's like, well, what can I do? And Carol says they can all put their heads together and try to come up with a solution. Mm. Cindy says, maybe we can do it with one big head. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> maybe you okay. should wait about six or eight years for that, Cindy. Ugh. Why can't they have it at the school or something? I know. Like, I know. I you would think the school auditorium. Duh. Now we're in the Brady kitchen. Greg is on the phone. He's calling theaters, trying to get a venue, but he's not having any luck. Later, Alice answers the phone. It's Sam. He has an idea of a place she can use for free. It's a warehouse. Alice says, that's fine. Anything will work. Sam says, you just have to let the temperature go up 80 degrees and move all the carcasses out. Alice says, no thanks. And she hangs up and rolls her eyes. Mm. Oh, Sam. And now we're in Mike's den. Carol was on the couch sewing and Mike She's is doing his... needlepoint. She has she an might empty... Be no, it was needlepoint. I checked. But needlework is something, you know, there Whatever. are people that do needlework. It's not, doesn't mean your life is empty. No, okay. Anyways, Mike is at his drawing board. Mike says he thinks he figured out what to do. Mike says they can have the play in the backyard. There's plenty of room. I'm like, really? There's plenty of room? Carol says he's a super genius. Cindy comes in and Mike tells her his plan. Cindy is excited. She runs out to tell the others. The play is only a day and a half away. Mm-hmm. And also, they're doing everything. Apparently, every- they have no help. And did Cindy write the play? Like, I'm not getting... I know. I, I wondered who wrote the play yeah. myself. Although it's not exactly, you know. Carol is, like, hanging all over Mike while he's designing. Like, mm-hmm. he's sitting... Because she doesn't have anything like, better to do. Now we're in the kitchen. Alice, Jan, and Marsha have a bed sheet spread around the kitchen table. They're all hand sewing. I don't know why you'd be hand sewing these. No. Um, they're making curtains for the stage. Alice gets up to get another sheet and pulls everything off the table. Ha, ha, ha. Uh-huh. She sewed it to her uniform. Oh, Alice. And we know they have a sewing machine because we've seen it before. Backyard. Mike and Cindy are putting up a PA system on the fake wall arbor thing. Peter is using a handsaw 
to saw a board on top of a sawhorse, which is not how you're supposed to use it, Peter. No. Greg is waiting. Greg is waiting for the board. I don't know what they're building. Peter saws right through both the sawhorse and the board, and then he hands the board <laughs> to Greg with half the sawhorse. And, you know, they're acting like, oh, we have to do all this stuff because we're having it in the backyard, but wouldn't they have had to build a set and everything? Well, anyway? they were building it before yeah. in the backyard. Yeah. Um, Mike just smirks at them. I would be yes. like, would you two step fucking around? we got to get <laughs> no. this done. Alice comes out with a tray of colas. She tells Mike, the stage looks great. He says, Alice, you ain't seen nothing yet. And later in the backyard, the stage is set up and folding chairs and the audience is arriving. That's not 200 people. Didn't they say earlier there were going to be 200 people? No, they said they needed $200. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. If everyone paid 20 bucks each, they don't need to. You're not going to have people in 1973 paying 20 bucks for that. Two bucks each. Carol is looking out the window with a worried look and she's wearing a black wig. Mike comes in wearing a prince costume with purple tights. Carol says she has opening day jitters. Mike says, don't worry. What can go wrong now? Just then Alice comes in. She looks good. She's wearing a pink wig and her makeup is like Andorra on Bewitched, yeah. you know, Andorra. Yeah. Tabitha's mother. She says, Mr. Brady, I made a terrible goof. Alice ate the prop apple while she was rehearsing. Oh, Carol says, Alice. Carol says there was a whole bag of apples and Alice says she rehearsed a lot. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the evil queen doesn't even eat an apple. No, she but gives maybe it to she was Snow White. Hungry. Yeah. Maybe rehearsing made her hungry. Alice says, maybe the audience will settle for a poison banana. Mike says, they have plenty of time. He'll go to the market. Mm. Mike goes out into the living room where Sam is rehearsing. And it's like none of them rehearse together. I mean, the seven dwarfs don't have solo parts. I know. Sam has on shorts, a yellow t-shirt that says, (laughs) this is dopey, (laughs) suspenders, a dunce type hat, and fake freckles drawn on his face. Mike says since Sam's truck is parked in front of the house, can he get a lift to the market? And Sam says, sure. And they run off. And then there's an exterior scene of a van driving. And the van is like a giant. It's not just a regular sized van. It's like an extra long giant van. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Because he has to deliver meat. The van pulls in front of what looks like a bank building. Yeah, a two-story bank building with reflective glass windows. And then just these cheesy signs, like handmade signs, stuck on at angles to make yes. it look like it's a grocery store. And one of them says that marshmallows are 19 cents. Mm, I love marshmallows. Uh, Sam tells Mike he won't move an inch. But as soon as Mike leaves, a cop comes and tells Sam to move. The cop tells him he's in a red zone and asks for his operator's license, mm. which I've never had a cop that say operator's license. No, me neither. Maybe because it's a truck. Yeah. Oh, it could be. Yeah. I thought the actor who played the cop looked familiar. Mm-hmm. And he was interesting. I don't know why. Handsome black man. He's very handsome. His name was Elvin Howard. And oh. he was in a lot of stuff. He was in Torah, Torah, Torah. Right. In 1970. And Midnight Madness in 1980. He was in Hill Street Blues and Matlock and all these shows like yeah, that. Yeah, he was on a lot of shows. He played a cop most of his time. Right, he played a cop. Right. He had the no-nonsense cop vibe. So maybe that's why. But Or maybe that was like a black guy. Right. One of the roles. So the cop wants Sam's license. Sam says, of course, and starts digging in his pockets. 
The cop says Sam better step out of the car. Now, I know this sounds kind of weird, uh, but the scene gave me anxiety. Not when I first saw this, but now watching just the, the cop telling him to step out. Right. I think it's because of all the videos we've seen, even though the, the races skin are color reversed, is reversed. Right. But it's just, I was just like, ah, yeah, don't step uh-oh. out, Sam. Yeah. Sam gets out of the car and the cop says, did anybody ever tell you that your mom addresses you funny? And uh-huh. Sam says, I'm dopey. <laughs> and the cop says the cop says he figured that out mike comes out with the bag of apples the cop says who are you supposed to be mike says prince charming and the cop asks him, is any id or did he leave that back at the palace and why does mike need to show an id he's not driving know. you know why is this cop hassling them sam says they have to get back with the poison apple poison the cop says mm-hmm. finally they fill the cop in about the play. He asks where it is, and they tell him the backyard. He asks if they have a permit, and Mike's like, oh, no. However, that issue is never resolved, and it's just dropped. Right. He asks, first he asks if they're charging admission. Oh, yes, and that's they, and right. they're like, of course, it's to raise money for Mrs. Whitfield. And then he's like, do you have a permit? And it is never resolved, and that's disturbing to me. Next scene is the Brady backyard. Bobby is looking over the wall of the carport at the audience. The kids and Carol are concerned. Where are Sam and Mike? Carol tells everyone to get ready. She'll stall. She comes out on stage and introduces Mrs. Whitfield. Everyone claps. Frances Whitfield, who plays herself on this, was the teacher of the kids on set for the whole five years of the show. Mm. And by all accounts, deeply loved by everyone and all the kids. They really liked her a lot. That's nice. So... I think this was kind of a little tribute to her to have her in the show like that. Carol just, as soon as she starts talking, the van screeches well, into the actually, driveway. actually, because this kind of bugged me, after Carol introduces her, then Carol seems at a loss and is obviously trying to think of other ways yes. to stall. Can't you say something about Mrs. Whitfield's career? Yes. Can't you say, oh, she taught at the school for 40 years and blah, 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 blah. You know, yeah. come on, Carol. I know, but that's anyway. true. So the van screeches into the driveway and I'm like, where did everyone else park? Where's all the other cars? Mike and Sam run in with the apples. And now where the play has started. And I think Sam does a very good job as Dopey. Alan Melvin, who played Sam, I think is a real pro. Like Ambie Davis, he was around a lot and he's just always really good. You don't realize how how good he is. And I totally forgot until I looked him up, I want to look up his name, that he played Archie Bunker's friend Barney Hefner. Yes, Barney Hefner. On All in the Family and Archie's Place. Yep. And he's been on a ton of other stuff too, but Cindy made me laugh as grumpy. Her makeup was really funny. It made her look like really She only gave herself two lines. I know. And then Bobby was good as Bashville. Greg was Doc, but he seemed also grumpy as Doc. And Alice did a great job. Alice nailed it. She was in a whole different play than the other ones. She really, really nailed it. And I also thought Jan is happy. I thought it fit her kind of that low level of hysteria. She is constantly running through her, that kind of little manic thing she has going on. And Mike, not only was he Prince Charming, he did the voice of the magic mirror. Carol didn't do too much. She danced on stage. She got to sing a vocalized yeah, a little bit. and when she made her entrance, her first entrance, and she's dancing around and throwing flower blossoms in the air, yes. and they cut to the audience. The audience looked confused and unhappy. Yeah, or bored. They were right, just like sitting right. there looking like, oh. Right. I mean, could they tell them to like smile? I thought the play was cute. I thought they did yeah, a good Except job. for the ending where Prince Charming basically 
sexually assaults Snow White and then abducts her and everybody's like, oh, a happy ending. And I'm like, yes, yeah, it's a sexual assault and abduction. Yes, that's what those fairy tales taught us. Yep, I guess it is. Also, I just want to point out to one of the kids in the audience was Todd Lickenland, Bobby's oh. brother from, or Mike, Mike Lickenland, who plays Bobby's brother. Yes. Mrs. Whitfield was brought up on stage. They gave her this giant gift box. If it was the book set, it would have been extremely heavy if it was the size of that yeah. box. Yeah, but everybody was handling it like it was like styrofoam ping pong balls or something. And then the tag mm. is the Brady Kitchen. Alice is serving Sam coffee. Alice says she likes happy endings like Snow White and Prince Charming getting married. Mm. Sam says he can take a hint. And Alice is Snow White and he's Prince Charming. He'll consider it. Mm. And I thought, you know what? Okay, Alice, there's your answer. Right. He's not going to fucking marry you. Right. Don't hope for it. Poor Alice desperately, desperately hinting because, of course, a woman can't say, hey, Sam, let's, why don't we get married? The woman has to desperately hint for the man to propose to her. And in Alice's case, it just ain't going to happen. Well, and but the it later, does before the, yeah. Yeah, and the later Brady thinks, I guess, they get yeah. married. Okay, season five, episode four, Never Too Young. The first scene is the shows the Brady house, like it does often. Mm-hmm. We're in the driveway. Bobby is dribbling a basketball. The pants Bobby's wearing, they're plaid. They're white tough skins with blue yeah. and red plaid. I had that exact same pair of pants. And yeah, and I also had another pair with purple and green plaid. Greg and Peter come out. Greg is wearing an Argyle sweater vest. He's got the car keys in his hand. Bobby says he thought they were going to play basketball. Greg says they have something more important to do. Bobby says more important than basketball. Peter says it's not even in the same league. Mm-hmm. Peter is going to Wendy's house and Greg has a date too. Bobby is disgusted. Greg says, have you ever tried kissing a basketball? Uh Bobby says he would rather kiss a basketball than a baseball mitt over a girl. Mm. Peter says, wait till you get older. You'll be kissing girls and liking it, Greg says. No way, says Bobby. I'm gay. No, he doesn't say (laughs) that. Just like dad. They leave and Bobby shakes his head. You know, it's been a few episodes since there was just some gratuitous female bashing for no good reason. And so this was bound to happen. Mm-hmm. You know? well, so they leave. Millicent, played by Melissa Sue Anderson, who's Mary from Little House on the Prairie, comes in the back gate and she walks like a linebacker. Well, that's how I walk too. But I also want to say that Lloyd Schwartz says that this episode served as Melissa Sue Anderson's screen test for Little House on the Prairie. And he basically takes credit for her getting the part on Little House on the Prairie and being a star and takes credit for discovering her. Of course, Lloyd is the hero of every story he tells. Bobby says Cindy is inside. Millicent says she came to see Bobby and to thank him for making a boy stop teasing her today. He says it was nothing. She says, no, he was brave and she appreciates it. She kisses him on the lips. He flinches away at first, but then he gets a weird look on his face and looks off in a distance. The screen shows a clip of fireworks going off and Millicent is like what the fuck it's not that he just flinches he like 
cringes in disgust. <laughs> I know. But Millicent seems oblivious. I know. She she's a kind of an oblivious girl. Bobby tells her she has to keep the kiss a secret or his brothers will ruin him. Millicent thinks it's stupid, but she says she agrees because she doesn't really give a shit. Little do they know, Cindy is spying on them from the sliding door with a shit-eating grin on her face. Mm-hmm. Cindy, up to her old tricks. It's very disappointing when there were several episodes where I thought they were letting Cindy grow up. And now they have her for no good reason. And it really isn't even a good It doesn't even need to be in the plot. I know. Right. Acting acting like a baby idiot. Very disappointing. Now it shows the Brady house that we're inside you. And then they show Alice on the phone with Sam. Bobby comes in acting goofy. Alice offers him a snack and he ignores her and murmurs skyrockets. Mm. Alice is confused. As with everyone, it's been Greg, it's been Marsha. You would think they would in acting now. that way. Yes. I would think they were on drugs, but apparently this is how they react when they have attraction to somebody. Now we're in the living room. Carol <laughs> is wearing a straw boater hat and Mike is trying on a bearskin coat. Mike puts the hat on. He takes it off Carol and puts it on. And he says, eat your heart out, Rudy Valley. And by the way, Rudy grew up in Westbrook, Maine and went to, he he didn't graduate, but he went to college at UMaine in Orono. Yes. Born in Vermont, though. Right. And Mr. Valley at Coney was related to him. Ooh, he was? Yeah. I wonder if Valley's restaurant was his family, too. It was. It was. Another fun fact, or this is something to ponder, this show aired... Just about 50 years ago from now. Era that the the Bradys were celebrating, the Roaring Twenties, was just about 50 years prior to that show. Wow. Isn't that weird? That is weird. Like that the Bradys were 50 years ago. I know. And when we were kids, the Roaring Twenties were 50 years. Wow. That is, it is my mind. Makes you feel old, doesn't it? It does. Bobby comes in. They ask him what he thinks of their get-ups, and he gives a dopey reply. Mm-hmm. Carol asks Bobby if he wants to try in his costume, and he heads upstairs saying he has too much thinking to do. And my interpretation is that he's going up to jerk off. They ask him if he's okay, and he acts goofy and yeah. says he's fine and goes upstairs to think. Yeah. Like we just, he has a lot to think about. Yes. Yeah, now we're in the attic. Apparently, Greg's room doesn't take up the whole attic. Oh, okay. Greg, Jan, and Marsha are looking at old vinyl records. Greg says Dave Osborne lent them to him. And every time I, they use a full name, I think it's a shout out to somebody. Yeah, I it know. is definitely. But I thought of Dave. What's that? Dave Osborne. Super Dave. Oh, Super Dave. He yeah. died. Yeah. Albert Brooks's brother. Oh, Albert Brooks' brother. Oh, yeah. He, he died. did die, didn't he? Yeah. They laugh at the funny song titles. Cindy comes up the stairs and stands at the top steps and chants, I've got a secret. I've got a secret. Very disappointing. It's like, how old is she? Fucking Cindy, Cindy. come on. Very disappointing. Jan asks what kind of secret. And Cindy says, that's for me to know and you to find out. Cindy leaves. Greg wonders when she'll grow up. Marcia says when there's no one left to blab about. Now we're in the living room. Carol is carrying folded towels upstairs. She hears ukulele music coming from Mike's den. She knocks and says, Mike, is that you? And it's like, who the fuck else would it be? No No one else is allowed in there. Mike says he's learning the ukulele for the Roaring Twenties party. Carol wants him to play I Want to Be Loved by You. And Mike and Carol sing the song, which I think is kind of cute. Yeah, they they do a cute little thing. They kiss at the end and Alice sticks her head in the door and says, boop, boop, 
swoopy doop with her feather duster at the mm-hmm. end, which used to always be on the Brady Bunch commercials. Yeah. In the boys' room, Bobby is doing homework, but his mind is drifting to Millicent. He's daydreaming that he and Millicent are running <laughs> towards each other as a time for us, which was a theme from Romeo and Juliet plays. Right. They are in the backyard. They meet in front of Tiger's doghouse and twirl around. Yes. And it made me and laugh. <laughs> Tiger's doghouse. Yep. Just keep that in mind. Dropping a clue in there. Then he kisses her on the cheek. Bobby goes and looks in the mirror and puckers his lips. <laughs> Peter comes in and wants to know what he's doing. Practicing. <laughs> Practicing to enter an ugly contest. <laughs> it makes me laugh because they don't have stuff like this. I know. Bobby says, no, he's practicing whistling. Peter says, you sure have a dumb looking pucker. Cindy comes in chanting, I've got a secret. I've got a secret. Fucking Cindy. (laughs) Bobby asks, what kind? And she says, that's for me to know and you to find out. And after she leaves, Bobby asks Peter if Cindy has something on him. Peter says, I haven't done anything. Have you? And Bobby says, not him. Then we're in the girls room and Bobby is confronting Cindy. She makes him guess the secret and it takes forever. Mm-hmm. And I remember this scene from when I was little when she was like making him guess scent, the right. rest of Millicent, and he wasn't getting it. And I was I'm like, like, what a moron. God, yeah. Bobby. And when he figures it out, he says, please don't tell. He asks her, please don't tell. Then the rest of the kids come in and demand to know who she's got a secret on. And she says, none of you. And they all look at Bobby, who smiles uncomfortably. Yes. Is this confrontation really necessary? Why do they care? Why do they give a shit? Why I would say, Cindy, I would I would confront her and say, if you have something to say, just fucking right. say it, because I'm and, sick of listening And to another you. thing that struck me watching this scene with the four older kids standing there is how much older they are yeah i know they're like they've all grown up yeah i know they all want to know what the secret is but cindy tells them there's no secret it was just a ploy for attention Mm. they all leave in disgust and i'm like how do they fall for that bobby thanks cindy and says if she were a girl he'd kiss her Hmm. which i thought was weird mike's den carol is dancing around in a red fringe dress she found it in a trunk in the attic. She asks Mike if he likes the fringe, and he says, I like the fringe benefits. Uh, Bobby comes in and says he needs to have a father-son talk with Mike. And Bobby says he's not sure if he has a problem. He asks Mike if he ever kissed a girl when he was Bobby's age, and did something special happen? My thought here is Bobby is going to ask Mike about erections. Well... My thought was at this point, I thought, oh, yeah, okay, those skyrockets are a euphemism for a boner or at least sexual or ejaculation. Like, right. Well, I didn't think ejaculation, but maybe I was thinking more. I don't think he's well, going to ejaculate every time he kisses well, somebody. You That'd know, some pretty... guys can't control it. Uh, uh, but like I thought sexual, a sexual feeling. Yes, like he didn't definitely. Get. Yes. Mike says it sure did. Her father came in. <laughs> Bobby wants to know if Mike saw skyrockets. Not really, Mike says. And Bobby's like, well, if you do, does it mean you're in love? Mike's like, well, it depends, I guess. And Bobby says, well, if you're in love, you have to get married. And Mike's <laughs> like, slow down. You don't have to get married. He said, you should have a long engagement, like 10 years. And Mike says, love and marriage etc are great but you have to be sure 
And Bobby says, oh, be sure and gets up and leave. And of course, this could open the door for Mike to have a more in-depth conversation with Bobby about growing up and your feelings, you know, getting involved with women and stuff. But instead, it's the typical Mike gives a vague and confusing instruction that means nothing to anyone but him. So, of course, the child is going to interpret it. Yes, as always. Yeah. Now there's a long shot of some suburban house. And then they show Bobby walking up a walk and he rings a doorbell. Millicent answers. Bobby says he has to make sure of something and then he kisses her. He sees fireworks again. Mm-hmm. Millicent looks totally bored and unaffected <laughs> by the kiss. She just sits there. And then she says, Bobby, you shouldn't have kissed me. I may have the mumps. She shrugs and shuts the door in his face. Why is she fucking answering the door? <laughs> If she, A, is sick enough that they think she might have the mumps, and B, may have a communicable illness, what is she doing answering the door? I know. We're in the family room. Alice is on the phone with Sam. She tells him she entered them in the Charleston contest. She says, where are your shin guards? (laughs) And if anyone doesn't know what the Charleston is, it's just dance. They danced in the 20s, and there's a lot of, like, you kicking your legs when you're and if anyone jig. doesn't know, all they have to do is watch this episode because there's a prolonged scene coming. Oh, very long scene. Bobby comes in moping. Alice says, that's a long face for a short guy. <laughs> and I think that's kind of insensitive given the other issues he's had with his height. But Yes. But that was another episode and their right. minds are completely... <laughs> Bobby tells Alice his friend thinks he might have the mumps. And Alice is busy. She's putting away groceries or doing something while he's right. talking. Alice asks if his neck glands are swollen or his cheeks puffy and all these other things. As she says each symptom, Bobby is surreptitiously checking like right, his glands. Right, because she turns away stuff. from him. Yeah, she she's doing away. something. She doesn't right. see him. <laughs> that was kind of yeah, funny. Yeah, kind of cute. Alice says his friend should avoid everyone until he knows for sure he does, so he doesn't spread it to other people. And she surprisingly does not catch on about the friend. Yeah. And I thought this was interesting. The first time I watched this, you know, in the modern era was pre-COVID then I watched it now it's kind of different even though you know there's always that danger of contagious diseases but just in a different context now in the bathroom Bobby is gargling (laughs) he looks in the mirror and checks his face and neck then he goes into his room and takes out a measuring tape and he's at the mirror and he starts to (laughs) measure his neck Peter comes in he wants to know why Bobby is doing that Bobby says he just wants to see how thick it is. And Peter says it'll never be thick as your head. <laughs> and then Peter wants to measure Bobby's head. But Bobby runs, <laughs> runs away. Bobby runs away. Pete says the hair is growing on the inside of Bobby's head and tickling his brain. <laughs> and one thing I think is kind of funny is this reminded me of Jewel, my daughter, told her father that his hair must be growing on the inside of his head. Mm, interesting. Because he's bald, affecting his brain. Well, he is bald, but not totally bald. He shaves his head like many men his age who are <laughs> insecure about their baldness do. So they won't be like a bald guy. They'll be this cool, quote unquote. What's guy better than a comb over? A shaved head. You don't have to have a comb over. He got annoyed because we saw this picture of Benjamin Franklin and told him that he should grow his hair really long. It's part of of Benjamin Franklin look. I'll tell you something. It shows a man's confidence in himself if he can rock the Benjamin Franklin look. (laughs) Uh, Living room. 
Carol says it's their final dress rehearsal. And I'm like, why the fuck do they have to rehearse for a party? Because like they're, they're going ladies. to a roaring 20s party. Um, Bobby is missing. Peter says he's upstairs. He doesn't like the Charleston. And no one seems to question that. They didn't come. They all start dancing. Bobby is watching from, you guessed it, the, the top, top of, the, of stairs, the stairs, where everybody always watches when and they're sad. And the dancing goes, goes on Yes, it's a very on, long scene. On, with <laughs> some interesting camera angles. And they <laughs> yeah. look like they're having fun. Yes, they do look like they're having fun. goes on forever. Yes. No one seems to miss Bobby. Now we're in Mike's den. Bobby is on the phone with Millicent. She says she won't know for sure if she's positive until the doctor visits in the morning. She says she'll call by 10 and let him know. She says he shouldn't have kissed her so quickly. And he says it was the Skyrockets. And she's like, huh? <laughs> Bobby is sad. He He's has to stay. Him. <laughs> he, I know. I, this is kind of a one-sided because, relationship. Because she was sexually, basically sexually assaulted by him. She wasn't feeling Skyrockets. But it's just another microaggression a yeah but she kissed him first that's true but she had a reason she explained why she was I doing know. it and then she did it bobby's sad he has to stay away from everyone until tomorrow morning now we're showing the brady it's the house at night Hmm. carol comes in the boys room to check on them and i'm like isn't peter like 15 and she's wearing like this negligee kind of thing I know. it's kind of creepy and, and like, also, she's not their biological mother like, i'm not a mom but especially with boys that age, I wouldn't come in and fondle them the way she does in bed. I would stand in the doorway and just <laughs> they were sleeping, breathing, or whatever. But she's in bed. To. I don't check on her. What's right. there to check on? Yeah, no, there's the whole He's tucking sleeping. in thing. But I think by the time a kid is 15 or whatever Peter is, that he doesn't really need oh, that no. going on from his mom. So after she checks on Peter, she goes over to check Bobby and she's dismayed to find a <laughs> dummy in his bed, bed out of clothes and a football helmet. I, as the, his New York Jets outfit from the previous episode, yeah. from the two episodes ago. Yes. Yeah. Carol wakes Peter up and asks him where Bobby is. And he's like, he's in bed. She goes and gets Mike, who's in bed reading. Greg comes in. He says he was watch, up watching The Late Show and he didn't see Bobby. They all go downstairs and Mike and Peter suddenly have robes on, even though when Mike first left the room, he had just his pajamas on. Well, I think the robe thing is so part of their lives that the robes just magically appear <laughs> on them or something. They go out in the backyard and Carol asks if the boys had a fight with Bobby. Peter says no, but he's been acting weird. Mike asks how, and Peter says he keeps looking in the mirror. <laughs> Greg noticed that Bobby's bike is still there. Peter says, well, he could have hitchhiked or walked or roller skated. And Mike is very annoyed by this. And it reminded me of when the, when Cindy and Bobby were lost in the Grand Canyon. And Mike were looking at Peter's like, they could have been eaten by something. They could have this could happen. At least they're true to characters I know. on the show, know. you know. And Carol says, they need to check the neighborhood. And Peter says, he could be in another city by now. And Mike is again annoyed by that. And Greg hears music. They follow the music to Tiger's doghouse, mm. which as soon as I saw earlier, like we said, oh. I knew it would figure into the story. Bobby's feet are sticking out and they pull him out and ask him what the fuck is going on. Now they're in the family room and Bobby tells the truth. I understand they were, oh God, where's Bobby? And looking for him. I still don't understand the level of anger. Like Mike's like, you're going to be punished, blah, blah, blah. I don't understand why it was such a big deal. 
that I know. He was in the just dog in the doghouse instead of in bed. Was he, he in the doghouse another time? Yes, that time. Um, time with when he had the donkey thing. I can't remember oh, yeah. what was going on in that episode. So they're the family room. Bobby tells the truth, and Carol says, "Why did you pick a girl with mumps for your first kiss?" And Bobby says, "She kissed him first. Mm. And Mike says, "Women's lib starts early." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another gratuitous knock at this zany women's lib thing. Oh, women, they're so silly. Bobby said Millicent's face wasn't swollen when he kissed her. And besides, he was distracted by the skyrockets. And Carol is confused by the whole skyrockets mm. thing. And she says she wishes Bobby would have told them, now everyone needs to get checked. And she said, at least your father and I have already had them. And Mike's like, I haven't had them. They don't say it on the show, but for a, an adult male to get mumps can be serious. They must have had a vaccine by then. I don't know. Bobby says, Millicent will call in the morning. And he apologizes. Mike says, if you had to get the mumps, you got them the best way possible. And Carol and, gives him a look. Yes, Carol's disgusted yeah. by that. Next morning, all are at the table eating breakfast. Well, they're not all. The they're not all. It's the girls and Bobby. The boys. Oh yeah, aren't where there. are the boys? Craig and Peter aren't there. Alice is serving the pancakes. Cindy says, "If they have the mumps, it's Bobby's fault." Bobby said, "Millicent is Cindy's friend," and Cindy says, "I don't go around kissing her." And Marcia yeah. and Jan are impressed that Bobby kissed Millicent. Although now, Jan seems a little hysterical and this a little manic. Also, though, I assume that they already knew until this scene because how else would they think that they were exposed to the mumps? Right. The phone rings. It's not Millicent. It's Sam for Alice. And Marcia says, "Alice, will you please make it quick?" And it's like, fuck her. Yeah. yeah the way she spoke to her. Horse. Alice, will you please make it quick? Fuck you, Marcia. Yeah. Alice says she can't talk. Sam says there's a special on lamb chops. Alice says, bring some over. And I guess Sam's not worried about catching the mom. Sure, well, come on over. Yeah. The phone rings again. And it's I just mil- want to point out for our younger viewers that back then there was no call waiting. There was no, no. we probably said this in other episodes, there's no voicemail. If somebody was on the phone and you called and you got a busy signal, they didn't know you were calling and you had to call back. The phone rings again. It's Millicent. Bobby says, do you or don't you? And then just keep saying, "Uh Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And everyone's getting annoyed. Not unlike Cindy being on the phone. That's That's off. When he hangs up, he says their conversation was private. Carol says, how can the mumps be private? Bobby says, the part where she said I was a good kisser was private. Uh-huh. She do- and she doesn't have the mumps. So everyone's in the clear. Bobby is going over to Millicent's. Well, first of all, everybody gets up and leaves the table. And there are pancakes, complete full pancakes on their plates. Oh, they did that not must eat, have made you feel better. It did. But that's how they all stay thin. Alice gives them food and they don't eat it. Bobby is going over to Millicent's. Mike stops him with a mini lecture about how many people could have gotten sick from Bobby keeping a secret. Carol says, don't be afraid to talk to us. Mike and Carol discuss the skyrockets phenomenon and then kiss. And Mike sees fireworks. Mm -hmm. Then they keep making out while Alice watches from the stove, which is kind of weird. 
Mm-hmm. And then she says, around here is the 4th of July or something like it doesn't matter what the calendar says. Right. It's the 4th of July. Poor Alice. She knows she's never going to see Skyrock. Who knows what she sees when she and Sam I'm get just it, like, this uh, is this is the message of the show. Oh, I see. Yeah. She has to get her thrills vicariously by watching those yes. two make out. The tag, the family room. They're all home from the 1920s party. Alice and Sam won the Charleston contest. Alice says to make Sam dance, she dropped ice cubes down his back. Ha ha ha. Uh-huh. And this one, the subplot had absolutely nothing to do. Charles- Only time it had any effect on the plot was when Bobby was watching from the stairs. And I think that the whole point of it was just so they could get dressed in costumes and dance the Charleston. Uh, but the that actors. friggin' scene where they were dancing was so long. I was right. like, oh my God, can we please? And yes, they look like they're having fun. And they probably made it long because maybe they had to fill time. Yes. Long scene. I and they were so. like, oh, good. We can just trim the scene however we want. If you want to listen to the next four episodes, Peter and the Wolf. Getting Greg's Goat, Marsha Gets Creamed, and My Brother's Keeper, that is episode 19, recorded four Four years ago. And uh, on November 6th, we will be back. Again, we're going to be doing one show per episode. Yes. With with Quarterback Sneak. Marsha, I like this one. I like this one too. And I think people will remember this one. Marsha has landed a date with Greg's football rival, Jerry Rogers, quarterback and dreamy, but is Jerry's romantic interest in Marsha just a ruse so he can steal Greg's team? And he playbook? will look very familiar to you. He will. The guy that plays him. And then after that, we'll have episodes every two weeks. It'll be a shorter episode. I, but I think we'll probably be able to spend a little more time talking yes. about episodes because we won't be cramming four into one show. So okay. thanks everybody yeah, for thanks listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for waiting so long. And we'll be back very soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.